Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. My name's Megan, and we are in full Christmas swing over here at ABC, so we have some announcements for you. First of all is our ABC Christmas party coming up on Friday night, December 16th from 5.30 to 7.30. It's gonna be a great time. If you have come out to our party before, you know how much fun it is. If you haven't gotten a chance to come yet, um, I ask you why not, and I hope to see you there. We're gonna have a lot of fun things like hay rides, live nativity, um, events and activities for youth and kids. There'll be snacks, of course. So we hope that you'll come out and join us for our ABC Christmas party. And then our Christmas Eve services are on the 24th, uh, Saturday night. We've got two services this year, one at five o'clock, one at seven. Um, and then just take note that there will only be childcare at the five o'clock service. Um, and then Christmas, since it's on a Sunday this year, um, we just, what better way to celebrate than to come on out and join us for service. So after you've had your family gathering in the morning, come on out to church. We've got one service at 10 o'clock and we hope you'll join us for that. So I uh, hope you guys have a great weekend and uh, we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks for watching. Uh, I'm Jake and one of the pastors here. We are in the middle of a four week series on Advent, which is a long standing church tradition within kind of the liturgical church calendar, a celebration of things that arrived in the arrival of Jesus. That's what the word means. Something the church has been doing for a long, long, long time. Uh, last week, Jeff talked with us through the idea of hope and the advent of hope. Today, we're gonna talk about peace. I wanna read this verse from Colossians 1 to frame our time this morning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I wanna read that last phrase one more time, that Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen to this line, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so we're asking what is peace? And when I ask what is peace, the most common answer I think we would hear from people would be an answer that is true, but not the whole truth. It's not all the way true. I think people typically, and even if you look at Merriam-Webster um, or any other source, it would say something like the absence of strife or something like the absence of war. And that's partially true, but it's not all the way true. It's like if you're looking at a piece of art, there's what they call negative space. If you're looking at a picture or a painting, and what negative space is, is, is you have the subject of the picture, whatever that is, and then the negative space is all the space around that subject. And there's a misconception, I think, when we think about peace, it's as if you're looking at a painting of war or strife, and that's the subject of the picture, and peace is just the negative space around that subject, the space that's not war or strife. And again, that's only partially true. That is an aspect of peace. But I think the biblical concept of peace actually exists more as the subject itself. It's a thing that's not just negative and it's not just neutral, but it actually contributes a positive substantial idea in and of itself, where it's the subject and chaos or brokenness would be the negative space. So the question, what is the biblical concept of peace? 
In Colossians here, when it says making peace by the blood of his cross, and all throughout the New Testament, it's the Greek word edene, and that comes from the Hebrew word, which is shalom. You've probably heard that word before, especially if you have any Jewish friends. It's the word shalom. Now, this can mean the absence of war or strife, like in Ecclesiastes 3.8. It's this line you've probably heard before. There is a time for war and a time for what? Peace. But most often, the best definitions are complete or whole. So not really about the absence of anything necessarily, more about the presence of something and the presence of completion or wholeness. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project said it would refer to a stone. This is very literal, technical from the Old Testament. The word shalom would be used to refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape to it with no cracks or even a completed stone wall. Something complex with lots of pieces that's complete. So think about this, imagine not even just bricks, imagine a whole building, a whole structure with all of its pieces, all the things that have to go perfectly right for that thing to come together, all the potential for brokenness and disintegration for crumbling apart, got foundation and framing and drywall and insulation and electrical and plumbing and floors and paint, roof, HVAC, all the things that need to work together in order for me to walk into my house and flip on a light switch and turn on the sink and wash my hands. When all of that stuff is complete and it's whole and it's cooperating for a common good, you know what that is? That's shalom. That's wholeness and completion. The adjective of the word, we're just kind of gonna do a whole, you know, Old Testament survey, get our idea, our heads around the idea of peace really quick. So the adjective of the word is used in Joshua 8:31 for whole uncut stones used for building an altar. Shalom is what happened then when Solomon finished the temple. He literally, in verb form, he shalomed it. He shalomed the unfinished temple, making it whole and complete. Deuteronomy 25, 15 uses the word for the correct weight and size of stones for commercial builders, meaning don't undercut, like don't reduce the size or the weight in order to cheat customers. Give them the whole fair thing. 2 Kings 20, verse 3 applies it to human emotion and experience. It says that a shalem heart, that's the adjectival um, uh, form of it, a shalem heart refers to an undivided attitude of wholeheartedness, just a whole integrated completeness. This is really interesting to me. In Isaiah 53, we see it used for the idea of spiritual healing. It says, upon him, this is a big kind of famous, you know, uh, prophesy passage of Jesus coming. Upon him, Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Literally by his wounds, we are shalomed. We are restored, made whole, made complete. But then if you remember in Matthew 8, 17, it quotes the same passage, but uses it for literal physical healing. It comes in this chain of Jesus healing all these people physically. And it looks back and quotes Isaiah. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So, shalom, so far, it exists not only as the absence of war, not just the absence of strife or pain, but more so as the larger idea of wholeness. Wholeness in physical structure with stones and walls. Wholeness of emotion and intention, this undivided spirit. And even wholeness in physical health of the human body. When the radiation works and the cancerous cells stop wreaking havoc, your body re-enters a state of shalom, as it was intended to be. 
Not only that, but then Proverbs 16, 7 implies that shalom exists between people. So there's a deeply relational aspect to it. It says, when a man's way pleases the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. I love how Cornelius planting a junior, I think summarizes the idea so well. He says that shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It means universal flourishing and wholeness. It's the way that things ought to be. Okay, shalom sounds really good, right? Shalom sounds pretty cool. So why do I think the idea is crucial for us? And I mean, what meaning does it have for us here in the middle of this Christmas season in 2022? I think our culture is particularly vulnerable um, to many lies, but at least this destructive lie in regards to peace. It would say this, that peace in its fullest sense is found in the absence of pain or something like that. It's found in the absence of discomfort or in the absence of toil. Like if you ask a lot of people, I think in our world or our culture, what is peace? Again, that's what they would say. It's something about the absence of blank or, or it's kind of maybe just this purely emotional state where I'm, I'm unbothered by whatever it is. So let me describe to you someone that I know. And I think it's someone you probably uh, know too, you know, someone like this, maybe even someone that you are. So I know this guy, he's around 40 years old. He has the kind of job that he's been working toward for the last 15 years. He makes more money than he needs. It's not opulent per se, but everything he could ever really want is more than well-funded. He buys nice cars and cash. He vacations really well and often. He's in the sweet spot at work where he has tons of autonomy. He makes more money than most and somehow still doesn't have to be a workaholic. He coaches his kids' teams every season and he never works on weekends. He married his college sweetheart. They have regular date nights. They're both in good shape. He does cross fit. She's a runner. They have kids who are healthy, good at sports, and do well in school. If they want to go to college, he can pay for it. If they want to work, there are jobs at his company and they'll be able to get in and climb the ladder quickly. They have the time and money to care well for their aging parents. They have a second house in the mountains and at some point they'll retire early and split time between the two. They're never religious, but they live with strong morals that usually reflect Judeo-Christian values. They're fine with the idea of religion, but more than anyone I know, they just don't see the need for dependent, surrendered faith in Jesus. And more than anyone I know, I'm tempted to agree with them. Now they have normal relational pain and problems, but it's all stuff that's out of their control. If you look at every controllable factor in their life, they've essentially eradicated discomfort and pain. Stress exists, but as much as anyone can control it, they have controlled it. See, they have optimized this life about as much as anyone possibly could. I think we all know someone who fits that bill pretty closely. And still, you may have had conversations like the ones that I've had with that kind of guy. Still for him, you know there are moments where they lie awake in the middle of the night and they have this crippling fear that they're just missing something. They wonder, is this all that there is? And maybe it's somewhere at the bottom of a third glass of bourbon. They just realize that they love the feeling of escaping, but they don't know why. Why is that? 
because the truth is that you can come pretty darn close to eradicating discomfort and pain from your life and still not be whole, still not be complete. Your life might be void of the wrong things, but that doesn't mean that it's full of the right things. So I think we're still tempted to believe that our lives would be more peaceful, would feel more peaceful if they were more like that guy. Because that's the logical conclusion. If you define peace as the absence of pain or toil or strife or discomfort. And if that's the case, we end up chasing a life that looks a lot like Ecclesiastes chapter two. This is a long chunk of scripture. I'm gonna read straight through it though. I want us to get our heads around um, what Solomon uh, experienced firsthand. He said in my heart, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Listen to this. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why is it like that? Because your life can be relatively void of discomfort and pain and still be tragically incomplete. So looking at the biblical concept of shalom, of wholeness and completion, I wanna suggest this as our point today. Peace is not found in the absence of pain, but in the presence of Jesus. And I think the world would tell you something that is partially true, yet completely shallow. That peace is found when you achieve this kind of emotional state or that kind of emotional state or this level of relaxation or this level of freedom from um, maybe it's oppression externally or it's discomfort or it's pain or whatever it is. But I think the fullest sense of the word biblically is that it's found not in the absence of pain, but in the presence of Jesus. Remember with me that scene, it was the middle of the night and the disciples were about halfway across the five mile stretch of the Sea of Galilee. And 10 foot minimum waves started tossing their glorified rowboat like a rubber duck in a hurricane. And just imagine it, like James and John are grabbing buckets and trying to bail out water out of the boat as fast as they can, but they just can't keep up. I just imagine Peter there like replaying the last words he said to his wife because he's pretty sure this is it for him. And he's probably cursing himself under his breath for letting a carpenter convince him to take the boat out in the middle of the night at a time when boats only go out to die. And as they're praying every Hebrew plea for salvation that they can remember from temple, they look over and they see their wonder-working rabbi and he's not working any wonders at all. He's asleep in the stern. And Jesus so calmly, 
wakes up so unfazed that it's maddening. And within half a second, the disciples are verbally processing their deepest doubts at him with a question that's inflamed by broken trust. And it's the kind of question that isn't really a question at all, but it's more of a statement. Teacher, do you not care if we drown? And what they really mean is apparently you don't. And Jesus gets up, literally rebukes the wind as only Jesus can. Then he looks at the waves and he says this phrase, peace, be still. And in a moment, the stars reemerged and reflected against the surface of a placid lake. And the disciples learned full well that peace is not found in the absence of storms, but it's found in the presence of Jesus. And in fact, they learned that it's far better to be with Jesus in the storm than to be without him on the shore. You know what that is? That is deep, abiding shalom. That is peace expressed in and through the person of Jesus. Not in the absence of a storm, but right in the middle of it. That is shalom. This kind of peace, this has always flowed naturally from the heart of God. It started in the Garden of Eden where Jesus was with the Father and with the Spirit. They were creating things exactly how they ought to be. It was complete and pure shalom. It was wholeness, but we lost it, right? And then that wholeness became fragmented and torn. It was broken to pieces. And then the restoration project began. God identified a special family, and then the family grew and got really, really big. It was called Israel. And then Israel was supposed to get back to that state of shalom, but they couldn't do it. They had judges who were supposed to reinstate shalom, but they couldn't do it. Kings were supposed to perpetuate it, but they failed. Nothing and no one could take those broken pieces and make them whole again. So then we get to the prophets who speak on behalf of God. We get to Isaiah in one of the most famous Christmas passages that there is. And he looked forward to the day when a prince of shalom would come and reign. And of his shalom, there would be no end, Isaiah 9, 6 reads. And then what happened? Galatians 4, 4 through 6. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So now Jesus enters the story in the flesh of the Prince of Peace himself, And he assumes, he takes on every bit of chaos and brokenness that there ever was and ever would be. And he takes the form of a servant. He becomes obedient to death on a cross. And as he hangs there on the cross, voluntarily drinking the fullness of God's wrath, he utters this phrase in Greek that's this word, tetelestai. And you know what it means in your English Bible, the three words that that reads, it is finished. It is finished. And talk about completion. Talk about wholeness and peace. So he died for sin. He rose victorious. Now the opportunity that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That shalom that you most deeply crave 
will be restored to your soul here and now because there on that cross, it was finished. It was made whole and made complete when he said, Tetelestai. See, Jesus, once and for all, he opens the door for you and I to experience true abiding peace, to be restored to the state of shalom for which we were made. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Ephesians 2 adds on, Jesus himself is our peace. So I asked the question, what is peace? But it's more like, who is peace? And his name is Jesus. The shalom that we were created for and will one day experience again in its fullness was wrapped in flesh and bone and it re-entered our world through the person of Jesus. So two points of application. Number one, there are people watching right now, and maybe this is you, and you need to answer the question, do I have peace with God? Okay, shalom sounds pretty incredible. It sounds beautiful. And I'm convinced that that's what I was made for ever since the Garden of Eden. That was the vision. I mean, that was the original vision and intention for us, that we would be whole, complete humans with God, for God, made by God. The question is, do you have peace with God? And here's what that means and what it looks like means first you would admit to God that you are sinful, that you have broken pieces in your life, and no matter how else you might try to optimize for life, you're still coming up incomplete. You're still coming up short. Two, believe that Jesus died to forgive your sins. He rose from the dead to make you whole, to restore you to the shalom that you were made for, and then choose to follow him. That's what it means to have peace with God, to be reconciled to the Father by the blood of Jesus. And then what else? Now, you know, for all of us who believe we have gained peace, we've restored shalom between us and the Father, then what? So Jesus has made peace, but then remember in, in the Beatitudes, he calls us to be peacemakers as well. Blessed are the peacemakers. So I would just say to be people of shalom Realize what it is that God has in front of you. Would you step into that fully in a way that brings the shalom of heaven here on earth, here and now? No matter what it is that you do. I mean, do you realize teachers of our church, do you realize that you bring the biblical concept of shalom into your classroom every single day? with the minds of your students, helping them fill out the empty spots, bringing answers to questions, bringing clarity to ambiguity. Nurses and doctors, do you realize, I mean, every patient you see, literally you are bringing to, to greater shalom their physical bodies, bringing them to greater wholeness and completion. First responders running into situations that no one else will run into and no one should have to run into in order to literally restore shalom where there is chaos and there's brokenness. Contractors, tradespeople, taking physical pieces and turning them into whole things. Literally grabbing materials from the back of your truck, carrying them to a slab of concrete, and with every hour you put in, you're literally building shalom from the ground up. Moms and dads, creating the kind of homes where things are as they should be, where kids are safe and loved and known and life can be whole, where there is, as Plantinga Jr. said, there is fullness and delight and justice and completion. 
See, church, Jesus has initiated in his arrival, in his advent, he has reinitiated this movement of shalom from the very beginning of God reclaiming his creation that was lost and broken and fragmented and torn. Now he's reclaiming it. And one day, that's going to be all that there is in a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be nothing but shalom, nothing but perfection and fullness and all the, the wrong things will be made right and all the pieces will be brought back to center and made whole. Nothing but shalom. And that's what we're invited to be a part of, even here and now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this season. We thank you for the advent of your son, Jesus, and with him, all the things that he brought, all that was lost and is restored and is being restored. God, I thank you for peace. I thank you for the way that throughout scripture, you help us form this deep, robust idea of what exactly shalom, edene, peace is. God, I pray for those who might be listening or watching and, and as we say that, something stirs deep in their soul and they realize, ah, there is something incomplete in me. There's wholeness that I'm lacking and that's because they don't have peace with the one who made them. I pray today, even as they're listening or, or watching wherever they are right now, I pray right now, God, they would make peace with you. They would receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus on the cross, the one who made peace by his blood. Pray that they would admit their sin and their brokenness. They would believe in your death and resurrection for them, and they would choose to follow you, and they would experience deep abiding shalom in their souls. God, for us as a church, would we recognize the ways that you invite us to be part of your story, your story of restoration and uh, creating, recreating a new heaven and a new earth one day where there will be nothing but perfect shalom, wholeness and completion and peace. You invite us to be a part of that even here and now. So God, we're honored and we want to be with you and uh, work with you and for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.